and welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today, we have with us a really special guest, Annie Critcher, who is the physicist at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab in Berkeley, California. She's the principal designer for the experiment that you've been reading about in the news since December, and she's the team lead of the Inertial Confinement Fusion Program. Hi, Annie. How are you today? Great. How are you? Good. So when I think of somebody at the center of the universe when it comes to energy, I I think you're going to occupy that space for me because fusion is tremendously exciting. And I I, want to start you uh, to take us back to where you were on December 5th, 103 a.m., what you were doing and how you reacted to it. Yeah, so um, the shot was actually supposed to go off the day before. Um, and so basically the entire day before, we're sitting there watching the shot clock, looking at the online dashboard, trying to see if the shot went off. Um, basically, uh, so I, since I'm the designer, I set all of my details for the experiment well ahead of the experiment. And I'm on call um, during the shot time, but I don't have to be there physically at the facility. And ever since COVID, it's been the same thing for the the lead experimentalist that I work with. Um, so neither one of us were actually there in, in the building. So let, let me help you set the stage for a second. We're talking about 192 giant lasers and I'm going to ask you when you when you start responding to this question to tell me what a giant laser is and what it looks like. Mm-hmm. Pointed at a cylinder the size of a pencil eraser in which we have deuterium and tritium compressed inside a diamond. Is that right? That's right. Um, so if you want, I can go ahead and jump into the um, kind of the details of the experiment first uh, before giving my reaction to the to the result. Um, so as you mentioned, what we're doing here is, um, we're essentially creating a miniature star in the lab about the size of, uh, a human hair or half the size of a human hair. Um, so we have 192 giant lasers. And when we say giant, that means the, the whole system that is used, uh, to create this laser energy and, uh, all the details associated with it. Uh, it's the size of three football fields. When you put all the 192 laser beams together, um, we take all of that infrastructure and shine the 192 laser beam energy, so two megajoules of energy um, at the end of the day, into a center of about a 10 uh, meter diameter target chamber. And then inside of that uh, target chamber, it's a spherical target chamber, the lasers all come in and they're focused onto the inside of a, a small cylinder, which is about a centimeter long. Now, this is something that's so small. You're tracking this all on computer screens and via diagnostics, right? It's not anything you can visually witness or see. Exactly. We have uh, very, very high precision specialized di- diagnostics that can see things the size of 
of less than a human hair. So I'm, I'm going to stop you right there. It's very hard to come at this, but I'm going to try a variety of ways to make this alive for people. You're a 39-year-old scientist, grew up, was born and raised in Traverse City, Michigan. Mm-hmm. For the women out there and for the fathers of young girls, tell me how do you get to be the principal designer of an experiment like this that's so critical to the future of humanity? Yeah, so, I mean, it wasn't a, a typical career path. Um, I am growing up in northern Michigan, um, and, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And then you sort of realize, well, hey, I'm really good at this math thing, and um, what cool things can you do with it? Um, I did have a lot of uh, encouragement from my father and, and my family, my entire family. Um, that meant a lot to me. And so they encouraged me to actually go do something like nuclear engineering at the University of Michigan um, and then at the University of uh, California, Berkeley later on. And so all, all throughout my career, I've had a lot of support in, in people that supporting women in science has made a difference, both men and uh, female role models. Would you have called yourself a nerd when you were in middle school or high school? Yeah. Sure. Uh, yeah, that's a good way to put it, I guess. Um, and the introverted type personality and like liking to see how things work and figure things out. Um, but physicists come in all different uh, personality types and obviously shapes, sizes, genders, etc. Um, it is it is it can be hard when you feel like you don't fit in. But I guess that's the whole point is that there's no fitting. There's no right, right or wrong. Uh, and, and I mean, we could spend probably 15 hours talking about you and how you got to where you were to do what you did. <laughs> but basically, you went to the University of Michigan, you, you found your way to the University of California, Berkeley, where you, you ultimately had a, a master's and a doctorate. Uh, did you know you wanted to get into the building blocks of energy early on? Or is this something that kind of came to you as your career progressed? Yeah, so when I was at the University of Michigan, um, kind of in my last year there, I I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to focus on. There was a variety of different things in the nuclear engineering department. Um, and so I took a in- summer internship at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in nuclear physics area. And when I was out here, I, I got to see what was going on at NIF, and I just thought it was a really awesome, grand challenge science problem that, you know, there's there was so many really uh, smart people working on it, and, um, you know, it just seemed like something that would be fun for a long period of time to tackle. Now, let's take a, a time out, and, and because we're going to try to navigate a lot of landscape here. Mm-hmm. There's a project in the south of France that I'm sure you're familiar called ITER in Cataraches, France, outside Marseille, Mm -hmm. that was launched by an initiative with, um, to take us back, Gorbachev and Ronald Reagan in 1985. Ultimately, all the principal countries in the world, including the EU, United States, Russia, Japan, and others, have been trying to work at fusion since uh, several decades and have thrown billions of dollars at this. Have you been to Cataract? Do you, are you fully conversant with what they're doing? And then immediately segue into how what you've done in Berkeley in California is different. Sure. Um, so there's a lot of different approaches to um, achieving fusion energy. Uh, both uh, their approach and our approach are trying to get uh, energy gain. Right, so more fusion energy out than the energy required to drive uh, the plasma. 
Um, so I'm quite familiar with what they're doing. Uh, that's the magnetic confinement uh, confinement approach. And what that what they do is they use magnetic fields to confine a much lower density, much hotter plasma for a longer duration of time for its net energy gain. Um, and what we're doing at NIF is we're creating miniature stars in the lab. So we, we confine the plasma with its own inertia. So we have an implosion and then an explosion. It lasts for a much shorter duration of time, but you get a much more intense burst of power. So, so what they're trying to do is achieve 10 times the amount of energy output is input into the process. And who knows how long it'll take. You've already achieved one and a half times. Is that correct? That's correct. So what do you have a timetable of when you think you'll get to 10x? Yeah, um, well, there's a few things to note here. So NIF is an, an R&D facility. It's a demonstration facility. And so it's not using the, um, the most efficient driver, laser drivers. So we got 1.5 times the amount of energy out as the laser energy on target. Um, but the amount of energy that's required to to drive that laser is higher than that. So uh, an actual um, power generation facility would have a different laser infrastructure, and so that would have to be considered for actual wall plug net energy gain. Um, and in terms of a time frame, um, so it's hard to put a time frame on on research and science. Um, although I will say we are making rapid progress, and once the thing ignites and starts going, it's it the progress becomes uh, more rapid. So the, the fusion, as you know, and a lot of the folks that have that are listening now include folks like you may know who Ralph Izzo is, who is the head of PSE and G, who's a physicist. And over the years, he's kind of always arched his eyebrows when I asked him about when fusion will be ready for prime time. So there's a lot of skepticism in the utility industry and among energy policymakers. Mm -hmm. Why do you think this may be different? Why, why this may be a game changer? Mm -hmm. and, and some of the articles that have been in the New York Times and elsewhere think it may be a decade or two off, which is always what is being said about fusion. Why do you think this is more optimistic? this time around? Yeah, I mean, a decade or two off is not unrealistic because a, a number of engineering um, developments need to happen uh, to actually be able to harness this type of energy, um, both for this approach and also for the other approach that, approaches that are being looked at. Um, the thing that's different this time is for the first time we've actually demonstrated uh, in the laboratory that we can control fusion energy output, and which can be used. Uh, before that, we've never actually uh, generated fusion energy output that was controlled in a laboratory setting. So that kind of it motivates and uh, it's a proof of principle for all of the different approaches out there. There's also a huge resurgence in the number of people working in this area and the different approaches that are being looked at. And when you have that many people looking at a problem, the, the progress is highly accelerated. Just to, to throw in it here for a second, it uses a Takamak reactor, which was a design by the Russians back in the 1950s. There are 200 of them around the world now. Do you think that approach is moot or is it as a scientist, do you want to see all these efforts continue on parallel tracks? 
Oh, yes, definitely uh, the second part to that. So fusion is a scientific and engineering grand challenge. Um, the more approaches, the more people looking at developing diagnostics, um, engineering developments, the more people we have looking at this, um, the better, and the more different ways to look at fusion energy. Um, there are synergies between what we're doing and what they're doing at ITER and in the magnetic uh, confinement areas. We can share diagnostics, etc. I, I don't think it makes it moot at all. I think it just invigorates the whole field. We're not in a place at this point where we're, we're all trying to compete vigorously. We're all trying to help each other and learn and, and make this a reality. So, so just to complicate it a little further, we have small commercial players, too. Mm -hmm. You pr you may be familiar with General Fusion up in Vancouver, British Columbia, uh -huh. which started around 2002, and they claim they're pursuing something called magnetized target uh, infusion with steam-powered drivers. Tell us a little bit about that and what you think about that approach. Yeah, so I, I know there's a lot of different approaches out there. Some look like what we're doing. Some look closer to eater. Some look in between or, or beam-type plasmas. This particular one uh, in Canada with the, the steam and magnetized target, I, I don't feel comfortable commenting on that one specific, specifically because I haven't looked at all of the details. Suffice it to say, there's a lot of different efforts out there, and uh, do you think that makes you optimistic that somebody's really going to hit the breakthrough that makes this viable in our lifetime? I think it's good to diversify, um, definitely, and and also in that diversification, even if something isn't successful in in becoming the, the fusion plant uh, prototype, we can still learn a lot along the way. And so um, I, I definitely think that the multi-pronged approach is what we should be doing. Okay. Take a second and tell us what you think the promise of fusion is. It's been heralded as the future energy source that solves climate change, that means we don't have to burn coal, that means we don't have to burn natural gas anymore, and possibly don't need the kind of conventional nuclear power that generates a significant long-lasting waste problem. Do you think that's hype, or do you think this is the solution for mankind going forward? I, I think this is, you know, it will take a long time, uh, you know, to get everything kind of working and, and in the precision that we need it to be and at the cost that we need it to be. Um, but the reward is that you have clean, limitless energy, basically carbon-free, like you said, um, which which operates on isotopes of hydrogen um, and and also doesn't create these long-lasting... Uh, and, and also uh, for, for fission reactors, which are also important, a part of our energy portfolio, um, they do create long-lasting radioactive waste and eventually uh, could be limited by by the fuel there. So it, right now, the biggest challenges, it, challenges are to keep the plasma confined. So the fusion plasma wants to cool itself very rapidly, and we're trying to confine it and keep it heated for long enough periods of time to, to harness the energy output. Um, to do that at a cost-effective rate is something that is largely an engineering challenge at this point. Um, obviously, a physics, applied physics challenges. Uh, and, and so it, it's sort of just one of those things that's going to take time now. But in the end, will be, I think it will be the, the final solution. Let's play a little bit with the idea of scale here. Um, 
not as much fuel is going to be needed to generate the vast quantities of energy as people think, uh, a lot less fuel than a nuclear reactor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. So the target that we used shot micrograms of fuel. So the very, very tiny amounts of fusion fuel um, can can give high uh, amounts of, of output energy. And I've, I've heard uh, nice estimates of something on the order of a cup of water could fuel your power your house um, or power multiple many houses. So um, it is it is the case that it requires much less um, material and we're t- and we're talking about deuterium and tritium. There's a lot of that around, correct? Yeah. So those are isotopes of hydrogen. So it's hydrogen with an extra neutron and two extra neutrons, and and hydrogen is in water. And, and talk about the scale of the problem. You mentioned the lasers that you're using here, being multiple football fields in size, aimed at a, essentially something the size of a pencil eraser. Mm-hmm. How do you solve that problem? How do you get that scale into manageable proportions? Yeah, so the actually, I mean, in terms of the laser being able to hit the target and at the precision that we need, we're we're quite good at doing that now. And it is one of the, you know, it's one of the things that um, humanity gets really good at high precision engineering. Um, and we've done amazing things in many other areas. This isn't something that we have trouble with. Although uh, to create new plants in the future, we would look at more compact laser designs. Um as a scientist, you probably are going to um, wince at this question, <laughs> but tell us a little bit about Annie Critcher, the person. Um, you're a 39-year-old woman. Uh, I assume if you live in Berkeley, you'd go to the Berkeley Bowl to do your shopping. Um, how's it f- how do you go about your life, and how excited and energized are you by this project? I mean, do you wake up in the morning and can't wait to get back at it, and do you stay at it till midnight? Sure. Talk about your life and and how you are integrating this project into it. Yeah, so um, so I did live in Berkeley for many, many, many years when I was going there and working out here. The experiments themselves are in Livermore, California, and I've been living out here um, for, I don't know, seven or eight years now in, in Livermore, California. That's about 50 minutes from Berkeley. I did used to shop at the Berkeley Bowl, that's true. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so I have three kids. I have three young children, um, a three-year-old, a six-year-old, and an eight-year-old. Um, and my sort of daily life looks like, you know, trying to balance work life together. And then in the evenings, you know, I do work until min- till midnight and all the cracks in my time are um, kind of filled up with this this work and have been for many, many years. Um, and especially during COVID um, and when you're all home and sort of trying to balance all those things. Um, this definitely has energized me even more. I mean, we had the success, the previous success was about a year ago, and that was, uh, very, very motivating for a lot of people. And then getting back into it and, and trying to make the next step is technically is one, you know, the most fulfilling time of my career. And it does make me extremely happy. Well, since this news broke in mid-December about this breakthrough, Tell me what kind of response you've gotten from, I mean, did the president call you? Did the secretary of energy call you? Have you heard from colleagues and kindergarten classmates? What's been 
your life? What's your life been like? Yeah, so um, we actually presented the results uh, in a panel discussion in D.C. Um, with the Secretary of, of, uh, of Energy herself. Um, we didn't get a call directly from the President, but I got to speak to her uh, directly, and she presented the results uh, along with our panel to the entire world. It was televised. Um, so I have received, you know, anywhere from you know, people from my childhood, my past teachers from kindergarten, um, friends from childhood, friends from grad school all along the way. Basically, most people I know and hadn't heard from in a long time um, send their congratulations together with a lot of uh, requests to do media uh, interactions, uh, colloquia, and giving to Colloquia Berkeley in the next couple of months. Um, so I've had quite a bit of contact from from people throughout my entire life over this result. What do you do to relax? Do you read science fiction? Do you go for a hike? <laughs> How do you unwind? So I like to run. Um, I like. I also like to paint. Um, and let's see, playing with my kids is also surprisingly calming at times. It makes me happy. Um, I like to to do woodworking. So I like to play around with that sort of thing. So like kind of like the hands-on building type stuff I like to do. So you're relatively young as a scientist. You could have three or four decades ahead of you working on this project. How, how do you see your life unfolding? And uh, is this it? Are you going to be solving this problem for the rest of your life? And how does that make you feel? Yeah, I mean, it is it is a grand challenge problem. And, you know, in a way... Why don't you define what that means? What What is a grand challenge problem? The Kind of the multi-decadal, um, you know, really high impact, long-term payout, um, you know, requires many people to work together from different areas to make it happen. So, it, in a sense, when you work on a problem like this, you feel obligation to the to the community, to you know, to the world um, on, on these grand uh, grand science challenge problems. So, I think I that is a definite, uh, definitely a possible career path for me to just continue working on this for the remainder of my career. Um, and it is something that I, I want to do. I can do that in uh, at the lab in collaboration with the universities and also the industry. So we're starting up um, more collaborations between the laboratory and the private industries. I'm going to ask you another personal question, and I hope I'm not overstepping my bounds here. But do you consider yourself a religious person? And what does it feel like to be creating something like a star in the space of a human hair? <laughs> Yeah, so I do consider myself to be a religious person, and um, I think there are many, you know, unsolved mysteries in the universe, and, and just to be able to sort of harness that a little bit in the laboratory and study it different ways um, and sort of see the wonder, wonders of our universe, I think it's it's an awesome um, thing to be able to do and, and to go to work and say that that's what you do. So I'm going to now ask you a very practical question for the utility executives and managers and energy policy writers and state legislatures and Congress and their staff that may be listening. They make decisions every day mm -hmm. on capital expenditures of billions of dollars of deploying energy assets that will last upwards of 50 years. How should they 
monitor what you're doing and the potential transformation and revolution that might be coming? Uh, that's a great question. So um, that, as we talked about earlier, we're not sort of expecting major progress on the day type timescale or the weeks type timescale. We're talking about steady progress over the next few decades. Um, we have milestones that we set in place with the policymakers so that they can sort of, um, in an intermediate sense, track these uh, milestones or improvements. And we, we have some finite goals for the next couple of years, for example. Um, we're, it is important to note that we are making more rapid, more rapid progress than in the past. Um, and the more people involved, the faster the progress will be. And so getting that extra support is, is impactful. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier, the payoff is huge and it's just the beginning. So getting that buy-in from our policymakers for, to be in it for the long term is going to be really important. Thank you, Annie. What a pleasure to meet you and hear what you're up to. Yeah, thank you for having me. And thanks for listening to Grid Talk. We've been talking to Annie Critcher, a physicist at the Lawrence Livermore National Lab. Uh, more appropriately titled the principal designer for the experimental fusion team you've been reading about in our headlines. Thank you for sharing your insights, Annie, and we look forward to visiting with you again really soon to talk about more and more developments. Thank you, Marty. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk. You can send us your feedback or questions to gridtalk at enroll.gov. And we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. For more information or to subscribe to the series, visit smartgrid.gov. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.